And remember, our Lord promised us this. He promised us that the world would hate us if we were true to him. San Francisco Archbishop Salvatore Cordelione speaking at the 2023 Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference. He gave us the last beatitude, both in Matthew's version and Luke's version, that we're to rejoice when they ridicule us and utter evil against us unjustly. We're to rejoice. The apostles in the Acts, they rejoiced that they were able to suffer dishonor for the sake of the name. So it's up to us to keep the flame of faith and true alive in the darkness. The truth cannot be suppressed. Let us be witnesses of that. You can watch and listen to Archbishop Cordelione's presentation, Making the Case for Speaking the Truth to Power, and all of the teachings from this year's conference for a donation of $300 by Labor Day. It's available via on-demand video streaming or podcast. Learn more at issuesetc.org or by giving us a call, 618-223-8385. I avoid using pronouns for transgender identifying persons, and I reject the new vocabulary because I've seen the suffering to which it leads. I often compare Mormonism to like a a pressure cooker, but it's got no release valve. And they just keep turning up the heat, try harder and keep improving, keep striving. The Holy Spirit doesn't use errors. He doesn't use false statements. And confidence in certain false statements might actually land you in hell instead of in heaven. Our greatest problem is not suffering. It's suffering and dying without Christ. Higher things attendees receiving free copies of Objections Overruled, Love, Issues, etc. How did feminism become the identifying narrative of Western women? It is so baked into our way of thinking that few, if any, question it. And why does feminism so often become a zero-sum game where feminists say women have to succeed and in order for that to happen, men have to fail? Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in live on this Monday afternoon, the 21st of August. We're going to be concluding our conversation on the history and future of feminism with Dr. Carrie Gress, author of the book, The End of Woman. We'll spend some time with Dr. Ross Johnson, getting an update on the Maui fire relief efforts. And we'll talk with Harry Shearer of Americans United for Life about post-Dob pro-life momentum. Last week, we interviewed Dr. Carrie Gress about the history and future of feminism. Dr. Gress is a married mother of five children in Virginia, a fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, author of several books, including her latest, The End of Woman, How Smashing the Patriarchy, has destroyed us. Let's pick up where we left off with Dr. Gress's answer to my question. You talked about the mean girls of feminism. Who are they? So the mean girls are really the group of women that I think sort of rose in in the 80s, I think, in terms of their power probably earlier than that. Maybe I'm dating myself here, but um, uh, you know, my, my consciousness of them is, is in the 80s. It's women like Gloria Steinem, who created Ms. Magazine, and other elite women that you can think of. Most of them are now 65 plus at least. But these are the women that have really used feminism for their own means and for power and for control. These are the women that do not allow other opinions to be really entering into the marketplace of ideas. So we can see this really clearly, like the view is sort of the perfect example of of how this is played out on a national scale. They're sort of the emblem of it on daytime TV every day. You know, you've got all these guests that are supposed to be from different backgrounds, but of course, every day 
anyone who's conservative or who's not walking in line with their ideology is ganged up upon by three, four other women and not really even allowed to speak. They control the applause signs. You know, all of that is sort of manufactured, even though, of course, we know in the current culture, conservatives are not that much of a minority. It's almost 50-50, actually. But that's not really what's replicated in the culture. And so I think that this is who the mean girls are, is these girls that are, I call them the queen bees, too, that they control the content that gets out there. And anything that they do not like is either suppressed or ridiculed. And the women who are involved in it are oftentimes humiliated or canceled or what have you. But, um, you know, just the fact that it's very hard to point out. I could list a whole list, like 15 names probably of women who we know just by their first name, but I could not do the exact same thing with conservative women. It's very hard for any woman who doesn't agree with them to sort of get any kind of status outside of her immediate sphere on a national scale because of what is being controlled by the mean girls or these queen bees that are kind of in control of everything. How did feminism become what you call the identifying narrative of Western women? Yeah, I think it's it's because of the mean girls, the queen bees. I think it's, you know, and they obviously didn't do it alone. There's obviously plenty of men who are involved in it. But it's an interesting thing to sort of know how women operate and look sort of behind the scenes to see how it has functioned this way, that there can't be any kind of engagement and dialogue or discussion. And it becomes about reputations and allegiances. And I'm thinking of even Madeleine Albright's line about how there's a place in hell for women who don't vote for other women. And, you know, just this kind of controlling language. And I think it's also been very politically fruitful and and powerful, just the centralization of not only of ideas that women should need to rally around political women because that's what women are supposed to do, but you even see the brokenness that it has created. You know, there's this whole subclass of poor women who will never be married, but their lives essentially, that the relationship they have is basically bureaucracy. They are married to the government because they do not have husbands that can support them in their vulnerability. And so the state steps in and says, well, we'll take care of you. And if this is what has come of it. And we can even see this in the Obama administration. There was that character, Julia, that they were promoting at some point, who was a woman who never needed a man her whole life. It was the state that was just going to take care of her every need. And, you know, men were really unnecessary. So yeah, I think it's been all of these different ways and in all these different institutions and and organizations that have sort of fallen in line with the narrative and um, don't open to anything that doesn't fall in accord with what it is that they're promoting. What is the zero-sum game of feminism? Well, I think this is the, the hard part about feminism is nobody's winning. The subtitle of my book is How Smashing the Patriarchy Has Destroyed Us. And I think you could see the us as either just women, but I think it applies to all of us. This is the, the little secret about communism and Marxism that people just, we don't know we don't understand. It's it's not going anywhere. <laughs> you know, we haven't seen, uh, we see it in places, but we don't realize that it's really Marxism that's led us there, that there's continually this effort to destroy and to grind down, but there's never any building going on. You actually have to love and serve others to be able to build something. And this is not what we're, we're being taught. We're being taught how to continually create more division, more rifts, more angst, more opposition to one another. And that's never going to lead to this utopia that they somehow think that we're all 
hope to get to someday. So yeah, it's, it's an incredible tragedy. Just the efforts that are being made are just futile. They're not doing what people think that they're supposed to be doing. You say that uh, feminism kind of lives by the axiom that for women to succeed, men must fail. What has feminism done to men? So I think this is such an important question. And, you know, I don't know that I'll ever write a book about men, but I have tried to be sympathetic towards men in my work because I think it's been sort of like kryptonite. It's just silenced men. Men, first of all, don't want to fight with women, which I get. And, you know, it goes all the way back to, I think, the Garden of Eden. Adam didn't want to argue with Eve about the apple. So I think that this is something that's just sort of built in. And that was before the fall. So I think maybe it's some kind of perfection, actually. The men don't want to fight with women. But I think that there is a way in which men have been really silenced by this. They feel like they can't have a voice. They've been told they can't have a voice. And again, this is where you see sort of the power structure happening. I mean, men have really, in many respects, and I think the Barbie movie was just fascinating to watch because of this, because Ken in the Barbie movie is basically just sort of supposed to submit. He's not necessary. He's just supposed to sort of be waiting around for Barbie. And, you know, of course, at the end of the film, they're sort of trying to affirm Ken and his uselessness. But this is really what the goal has been, is to just neutralize men and make women powerful. And that's what the movie makes plain or makes clear. What's behind the ideology is this belief that if women were just in control of everything, then there would just be peace and order and, and whatnot, and that men are the ones that are really bringing in the chaos and the mayhem and the wars and on and on. So I, I think that's the the remarkable thing is just to see how much it has shut men down. And even the, the constant barrage of things like commercials where men are just the idiots. They can't change a baby's diaper unless the mom comes home and helps him out. And just over and over again, we see this sort of male bashing. But of course, if it was flipped, people would be outraged. <laughs> so there's very much a, a way in which I think men have been controlled and suppressed and told to just stay quiet. The best way for men to recover some of their power is the exact ways it was taken away. It's by being better men, by being better fathers, by teaching their sons how to be good men, teaching their daughters how men ought to love women, all of that, that's the better thing rather than sort of stepping into what might feel like a bandsaw of feminist angst and the maelstrom of tropes and sound bites and all of that that we've kind of been armed with for about 50 years now. How did the women's movement lead directly to the LGBTQ movement? This is a great question because it goes back again to the idea of getting rid of gender altogether. You also have this whole pattern. There's the civil rights movement and then the women's movement sort of attached itself to it. Actually, at that point, it was just the G. The gays decided that they would attach themselves to that movement. And it was the first time in the 60s that they actually proclaimed themselves as a minority or a new kind of a victim status of what we were talking about earlier against the oppressive culture of heterosexual men and women. And at that stage, you've got the L's get added on, not because the G's and the L's are really a community. There's there's really all this angst between these two groups because the men hate the women and the women hate the men, but they see that they have a common purpose. And so it just sort of spins out of, of that. But also, again, this idea of victimhood, I think, is a really crucial one that happens. I think there's a lot to be said, and it doesn't get talked about a lot, but just even for the role that contraception has played in this. Because suddenly you've got heterosexual couples who are contracepting. And, you know, it's interesting to talk about this because I think I knew of a professor back in the 80s who would talk, it was a law professor, who would talk to his students and say, you know, 
contraception is going to lead to gay marriage. And, and his students thought, you are nuts. Like it's never going to, that's crazy. But in fact, what he was right, he could see heterosexual couples would suddenly say, well, our relationships don't look any different from same sex couples. So what's the problem. And for good or for ill, there's obviously all kinds of consequences related to that. But I think that's one that doesn't get brought up for many reasons because of the fact that it's just such a controversial perspective. But I think it played a significant role because of that getting rid of fertility in the minds of heterosexual couples as one of the goals of their relationship and of marriage itself. I and mean, it's sort of like saying, what happens if you get rid of the nourishment of food? And it's just all about taste. It's all about flavor. You know, you're collapsing down the whole meaning of that. So we see this kind of wreckage around us. But I think that that was a a very critical step in moving towards the acceptance of the LGTB plus community because of the fact that it was hard to distinguish if it's about pleasure for us, it's about pleasure for them. And that was really gave rise to it. But again, it was also this effort to really undermine culture and to start promoting these things that would strip away the nuclear family and homosexuality was one of those key pieces going back to Wilhelm Reich and Kate Millett, Angela Davis, all of those thinkers who were trying to just disrupt civilization in any way that they could. Dr. Carrie Gress is our guest, a fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center and author of the new book, The End of Woman, How Smashing the Patriarchy Has Destroyed Us. On the other side, how has feminism led to a broader effort to sexualize young women and children? I like that we get to talk about these things and we hit it from a different angle, but because we love each other and because we have the same religious views, you know, church is the centerpiece of our lives. Worship is the centerpiece of our lives. Molly Hemingway speaking at the Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference. So when we are just going back and forth on politics, it's really not that important relative to the things that do matter. In all seriousness, if you do not have someone in your life that you both completely trust and regularly engage in arguments with, you're doing it wrong. You can watch and listen to journalists Mark and Molly Hemingway's Q&A and all of the presentations from the 2023 Making the Case Conference for a contribution of $300 by Labor Day. We'll send you links to download a podcast or watch a video stream. Order today at issuesetc.org or by check. Make your check payable to Issues Etc. and send it to Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Listen to what you want, when you want. You're listening to Issues Etc. Memoria Press award-winning Latin programs have successfully taught hundreds of thousands of students across the world. Their easy-to-use, step-by-step Latin curriculum provides students with an academic vocabulary, a mastery of English grammar, and strong critical thinking skills. If you're interested in learning more, visit memoriapress.com and save $5 on your next purchase by using the coupon code LPR23. Memoria Press, saving Western civilization one student at a time. For your next family vacation, consider Our Beach House, a charming three-bedroom vacation rental on beautiful Siesta Key. Just off Sarasota, Florida, Siesta Key Beach, consistently voted America's best, is just 100 steps away. Whether you're watching the sunset over the Gulf of Mexico or frolicking in the warm surf, you and your family will fall in love with Siesta Key. Check us out at SiestaKeyRentalGenie.com or call Virginia at 941-266-1858. 
Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. We're talking about the history and future of feminism. Dr. Carrie Grass is our guest. Folks, you have two weeks left to order video and audio recordings of the 2023 Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference. The recordings feature journalists Mark and Molly Hemingway, San Francisco Archbishop Salvatore Cordelione, Luther Church, Missouri Synod President Matt Harris, and Kyle Mann of the Babylon Bee and others for a donation of $300 by Labor Day We'll send you a conference recording link, username, and password. You can order online at issuesetc.org or by giving us a call, 618-223-8385. Dr. Grass, how has feminism led, either wittingly or unwittingly, to a broader effort to sexualize young women and even children? I think this is a great question because of the fact that free love was such an important piece of the movement. You know, it was just this this desire to let women have kind of this sexual freedom that they believed men had. So that with feminism, this idealization of man that has happened with it, it wasn't a good man that they were trying to be like. It was that it was a bad man. It was a man that was unfaithful to his wife and playing the field wide and far. And that was really what they were were striving for, was to allow women to have that same sort of license and not be burdened by their fertility. So we could see this very early on is this happening of lessening and lessening, you know, something like Teen Vogue now. It's just, it's unreadable because it's just amazing how many horrible things that are put into it teenagers don't need to be reading about. And yet that's just become the norm. But I think that that's part of it, too, is just there's an innocence there that they're trying to corrupt. And it's easier if you do it when they're little because, you know, when there's a certain amount of grooming and abuse that happens when you're young, you don't know any better. And it just gets rid of any sort of moral boundaries that people may have had instilled in them by good people. Tearing this down from the very beginning just feeds them right into the ideology of the oppressor and the victim and all these things that have just been swirling around, but it just has to keep coming younger and younger. And, um, you know, tragically, we're just seeing so much incredible abuse and brokenness. And that the trans issue, I mean, just what's the targeting of children and their bodies is probably one of the most tragic pieces about it because children make decisions. They can't buy a pack of cigarettes, but they're making decisions about their bodies that will fundamentally alter their bodies for the rest of their lives, including their own fertility. And I can say very few of us had any concrete ideas about our fertility when we were 12 years old. So it's incredible to see how deep it's gone and the guardrails of parents and adults that should know better. It's just incredible. It's those have been just shut down. Is there a way to undo the damage done by feminism? There is. I mean, I think by and large that it's just a matter of like reverse, like, restore the patriarchy, bring God back into the culture, remind women the beauty of motherhood and the joys that are connected to motherhood, all of these kinds of things. I think it's easy to say that, but it's obviously hard to do. But I'm really heartened and encouraged by a lot of the families that I see around both and people that I speak with and just read about and learn about. So many people are going back to this model of the nuclear family and trying to restore that and protect their children from these different ideologies. And you can see it even this morning, I was hearing about one major school 
district in I think the sixth biggest in the country is down like 10%. So parents are pulling their kids out of public schools, doing a lot more homeschooling and finding alternative ways to educate their children because so many problems in the public schools. But yeah, I think that a lot of things can be done. The hardest part is, again, because we have this monoculture that women have bought into, it's going to be incredibly hard to start influencing that. But what's encouraging is that if we could start paying attention to what we've typically thought of as fluff, like women's magazines, women's television, daytime TV, movies, book publishing, all of that. I think that those are really the ways in which the culture has been torn down because we've neglected those things and let the left take over and run those completely. If we can start paying attention to those things, it doesn't have to always be about an argument or a reason. It can actually be done sort of through osmosis because we're allowing people to see the beauty of the message that we have. And I think that's the critical piece is our message is actually more compelling. It's more beautiful. It draws on so many of the things that are deep within the hearts of people already that I think once people start seeing it, it becomes very attractive. And that's what we have working for us. It's just a matter of sort of trying to communicate that in new and clever and creative ways that people are excited about instead of just another academic article. What does womanhood, apart from all the myths of feminism, offer society? Oh, goodness. Well, I mean, fundamentally, the most basic thing, obviously, is the perpetuation of the species. I mean, this is one of the problems we're facing now is just the birth dearth and all of these cultures that are below replacement level, which, you know, is just horrible. So many countries are have hit that stage, and it's almost impossible to recover from that. And I think we also see in the abortion numbers. I mean, this is one of the statistics that just blew my mind is that we have more abortions internationally than the collective number of people that die from everything else. So I think last year was something like 63 million people died. Well, we had something like 72 million abortions. So I think that's a key piece is the birth rates is obviously a fundamental thing. But I think it's so much more beautiful and compelling than all of that as well. I think women, you know, in many ways we've been maligned because and told we're being codependent if we want to serve others or that we're self-serving or who knows. I mean, there every sort of distortion has been put out there for women who genuinely recognize that in serving others, first of all, they sort of lose themselves in it. You know, this is how you get rid of narcissism is by thinking about others. But they also have this capacity to help people become the person that God created them to be. I think that's really vital. And that's what we have have lost and denigrated, you know, just how look down upon the role of of homemaking or of being a stay-at-home mom or raising your children has become. You know, there's always sort of this disappointment like, oh, she had this great career and then she threw it away because she had kids and she stayed home with them. Rather than seeing like what an incredible gift it is to not only her, but also to her children and to society collectively to have children raised in a way where they know they have a mom who's there for them and loves them and knows their needs before they do sometimes. I think that those are the things that women bring to the table. I think those things are also what women bring to the table in the workplace as well. And we can make obviously significant contributions in the workplace. I'm not trying to imply that women ought not to work because I'm obviously (laughs) working, but I think we have specific gifts. And if we can get away from trying to mimic men in the use of our faculties. I think so much would flourish from that. Families would flourish, workplaces would flourish if we can get rid of this. And also this underlying resentment and this sense of victimhood. I think many of these problems would sort of dissipate on their own because 
of the gifts they can bring to the public square and to their homes. Dr. Carrie Gress is a married mother of five children in Virginia, fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, and author of several books, including her latest, The End of Woman, How Smashing the Patriarchy Has Destroyed Us. You can purchase this book at our website, issuesetc.org. Click Talk On Demand Archives. Dr. Gress, thank you very much. Oh, thank you. It's my pleasure. We will get an update on the Maui fire relief efforts with Dr. Ross Johnson, director of LCMS World Relief and Human Care Disaster Response, right after this. The church's music from the second century. Shepherd of tender youth, guiding in love and truth. The sixth century. The twelfth century. The 16th century. The 21st century. The best of the church's music from the past 2,000 years. LutheranPublicRadio.org The Lutheran Church Missouri Synod's life ministry is thousands of people sharing Christ's love and mercy and giving witness to our Lord's creation of life, His design for marriage and the family, and the God-given value of all human life from conception to natural death. Working with many partners, LCMS Life Ministries sponsors human care efforts that meet the needs of body and soul and provides resources and educational events for all ages. To learn more, email lifeministry at lcms.org and visit lcms.org slash life. Many educational institutions are governed by the whims of culture and are increasingly hostile to the Word of God. In contrast, Faith Lutheran School in Plano, Texas, provides classical Lutheran education rooted in God's Word for students preschool through grade 12. Simply put, we equip students to stand firm in the faith through solid education focused on wisdom and virtue. We offer in-person instruction as well as live online classes for remote learning. To learn more, visit flsplano.org, flsplano.org. Your comprehensive source for information, teaching, and truth. You're listening to Issues Etc. If you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Dr. Russell Dawn, President of Concordia University, Chicago. Indeed, the quest for truth is at the core of a university's purpose. The liberal arts, illuminated by the revealed truths of Scripture, are powerful for equipping students for a life of self-governance. A disciple is one who follows the Master. So what does it mean to follow Jesus? He said that it means to take up one's cross. The cross is thus the symbol of dying for others of dying to self for the sake of serving others. And a life of service is a life well-lived. Truth, Freedom, Vocation, Concordia University, Chicago. 
cuchicago.edu.